do this quietly. You can't hear me, you tell me so. Uh, but I think uh, there's pretty good acoustics in here. I'm supposed to start a meeting tomorrow. I probably need to try to start it with some kind of voice. Um, and I think we can uh, get an exciting study, even if the volume is little. So, um, really, I have a hard time in Hosea trying to figure out an overall outline of the book. It's, Hosea continues to return to the main themes that he discusses. Certainly, you can say the first three chapters deal with his marriage to Gomer, uh, the parallel with God's marriage to his people. Certainly not that. But the rest of the chapters, you kind of intersperse the condemnation of their sins, uh, the judgments that God is bringing upon them, how outrageous it is in view of all that God has done for them, and even some passages that look forward to blessings after they have been punished. So you kind of have all of those themes. One of the things that I really like about Hosea, and I think we've seen this already, we certainly see it today, he has really cool ways of expressing himself. Lots of neat figures and comparisons. There's some really interesting stuff uh, in this. If you just stop and think about how he says it, great applications for us. So uh, I would call this section from 8 through the first half of 11, Punishment is uh, a pretty broad term for a whole lot of stuff we're going to see in this. So, uh, would somebody read Hosea 8, verses 1 to 7? Put the trumpet to your lips. <coughs> like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law, and they cry out to me, My God, we Israel know you. Israel has rejected the good, the enemy will pursue him. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have appointed princes, but I did not know it. With their silver and gold, they have made idols for themselves, that they might be cut off. He has rejected your captives, O Samaria, saying, My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For from Israel is even this. The craftsmen made it, so it is not God. Surely the calf of Samaria will be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind, and they reap the whirlwind, and standing, the standing grain has no heat, and it yields no grain. Should it yield, strangers would swallow it up. Alright, so what does he tell Hosea to do in this one? Sound the trumpet. Why? Why sound the trumpet? What does the trumpet do? Warnings. I think this is a warning trumpet, the trumpet of alarm, because God is coming against His house uh, through through the the enemy nations that He's bringing. Why is God going to bring destruction to His people? Because they went against Him. Exactly. They didn't do what was right. They rebelled against His law. Now, what did they say about God? Oh, we know you. Oh, we're, we're good friends. You know, does that really mean much? Did you ever have somebody who says, Oh, I, I like you so much. I'm this, I'm that, and you're so wonderful. And you know all the while they're trying to stab you in the back and undermine you and spread rumors about you and all that kind of stuff. 
do you really pay much attention to what they say to your face? Well, you know, are there any, any passages in the New Testament where you see what people say and what they do about God being different? What do you think of that? Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Yeah. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. It's easy to say nice things about God. Do we do what he wants? Sometimes we think as long as we're nice to God in our words, he'll overlook our transgressions of his will. That's not the case. I wonder why they were crying this out anyway in verse 2. I wonder what their motive was. Why does he say that? I don't want punishment. Exactly. Yeah. This looks to me like a cry of fear and not of love. You know, like an effort to try to convince God that they don't need punished. You know, this is not the I know you of somebody who has a deep relationship with God. But lots of people say nice things about God when they're in trouble. So that's where they were at. He says Israel's rejected the good. You know, that they, they don't turn to, to, to God and to his word. They don't listen to God. Look at verse 4. They have set up kings and appointed princes, but what did they not do? <clears throat> they didn't listen to what God wanted. They just did this stuff on their own. In fact, pretty much everything about Israel followed the same pattern. They did it their own way without even asking God's opinion and without following his will. Whether it's their politics, their religion, their um, defense, their diplomacy, the whole nine yards, it was what they wanted to do without ever really listening to God. Do you think God doesn't know that? He sees through that. He says, you were, you were trying to follow my principles when you decided who would become king and who would become a prince. Think about Israel. What kind of a kind of a situation did Israel have in the last thirty years of Israel's history, as far as the kings were concerned? Do you know? It wasn't very stable. Very unstable. What would happen? I was unstable. Kings kept on getting assassinated by another one rising to the throne, and they would get assassinated. And yeah. Do you think they're listening to the will of God? You know, it was just chaos. You know, whichever faction, you know, could could get the upper hand, they'd rule for a week, a month, a year, five or ten years until somebody else rose up, assassinated them, threw over through the government, started their own government. He said, none of this is for me. You're not listening to me in this. You know, that, that wasn't their concern. Well, what about what they did with their silver and gold. Were they listening to God in that? What were they doing with it? How would God feel about that? These blessings that he has given them, they are using for the worship of other things. Yes. That angers God to take his prosperity, his silver and gold, It'd be a lot. So much like 
a man giving a lot of stuff to his wife that she turns around and gives to her boyfriend. How would you feel as a guy about that? <laughs> that's just, there's something not right about that. You're, you know, that's, that's going to be uh, grounds for domestic violence in a lot of uh, households. Uh, but that's exactly what they were doing. You know, uh, he says he's rejected your calf, O Samaria. You remember how they, you know, had Jeroboam making the golden calves at Dan and Bethel, and, and then they just proliferated the making of idols. He says, my anger burns against them. Uh, you know it's not a god in verse 6. How do you know it's not a god? A craftsman maker. Yeah, you know. How can you have a God made by a man? That doesn't make any sense. So God's going to take the calf of Samaria and break it into pieces. He said, they sow the wind, they'll reap the whirlwind. You know, if you sow a seed, what do you expect to get? Plant that will eventually produce... The plant that that seed came from. Yeah. Ever thought about that? You know, and how many seeds would you expect to get out of one seed that you plant? <coughs> a lot in many cases. You know, what if you plant a corn seed? Then you get a corn plant. Do you know how many, how many ears are on a good corn plant? If any of you ever had any farming experience. Two, maybe. Yeah. yeah, a good plant will give you a couple of ears. Now, have you ever looked at an ear of corn? How many seeds are on an ear of corn? Yeah, quite a number. I mean, every one of those little kernels you eat, if you drive that, I don't know what else you might have to do with it, if you plant that in the ground, theoretically that's going to bring corn. So you expect to get more than what you planted. So they sow the wind. You know, they sow just disobedience and rebellion. What are they going to reap? The whirlwind. They're going to reap even more destruction and devastation. You know, maybe he's thinking about their efforts to try to butter up Assyria and make an alliance with them. Well, it was going to come back to haunt them. They were sowing to the wind, they'll reap the whirlwind. Um, so, they're not listening to God and not obeying him was going to create severe punishment for them. Comments and thoughts on these first uh, seven verses. Israel is swallowed up. They are now among the nations like a vessel in which no one delights. For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey all alone. Ephraim is, has hired lovers. Even though they hire allies among the nations, now I will gather them up, and they will begin to diminish because of the burden of the king princes. Okay, a little bit difficult here. Israel swallowed up. They're now among the nations like a vessel in which no one delights. Now the idea of them being swallowed up, I think, is the idea that what did the nations really want from Israel? Their wealth? Absolutely. 
you know, these nations that were so friendly with Israel and wanted to help Israel so much that they were tempted to make all these alliances with, the truth of the matter is, all they wanted is to get the stuff Israel had. You know, and so they ended up swallowing up Israel and their things. And Israel became among the nations like a vessel in which no one delights. You know, ever had, I don't know, some beat up old something or other that goes from garage sale to garage sale that nobody really wants? You know, said, that's kind of the way, you know, Israel became. Did any of the nations really love Israel? Not at all. They thought they were loved. I mean, it's about love. Some women, I mean, some, some even young women, those of you who go to public school, things like that. I mean, you know that in certain elements of school, there's these girls that the guys, you know, can get, and they go through a succession of guys, giving the guys what they want. And there's a sense in which, in the short run, a girl like that's popular. Because the guy knows the girl wants to do whatever he wants to with her, and he just satisfies his own desires. But in the long run, who wants a girl like that? But the girl any guy wants to marry? <laughs> Why would you? Every guy in the county's had her. You know, she ends up being just rubbish. Try to throw her out. That's the way Israel was. They made all these alliances, and they, they flirted with all these worldly nations and people, and then nobody wanted her. We, we, we are not wise when we don't maintain our purity toward God and we want to be friends with the world and compromise our standards to, to make alliances with the world. Now he makes a contrast, I think, in verse 9, though there's certainly plenty of room for debate. What do you see in a wild donkey? How does a wild donkey maintain independence? <coughs> Tame donkeys are usually stubborn enough as it is. I imagine a wild donkey would be even worse. What kind of social interaction do you expect a wild donkey to have? Well, if they're all alone, then they're probably not going to have much. Isn't that kind of what you'd see in a wild donkey, sort of so stubborn and independent, they just do whatever they want, they don't really care what anybody else wants? Now, you can see the value in that. The wild donkey manages to keep their freedom. By contrast... What does Israel do? They have to have a bunch of uh, friends to keep them company. Yes, so they hire these lovers. You know, these other nations that they ally themselves with and pay off to defend them. The idols and all of that. So Israel loses her independence by hiring all these lovers to take her. And they make short work of her. You know, that when Israel tried to play the international political game, they were. It was a disaster. And these nations knew what they were doing. They knew how to manipulate Israel and bring her down and get all the stuff from her. So it was just so unwise that Israel didn't maintain its purity before God. We're in the same boat. Think about applications we can make of that. What about when we want to follow after worldly philosophies and worldly ideas 
And, and we want to please the intellectuals and the important people in this world. And so we want to compromise the truth of the scriptures to try to, you know, sort of make something that the world will think is pretty good. What's that going to do for us? Is that going to help us? Not a bit. Let me give you a good illustration of this. You know what religious people have done with the scientific uh, theory of evolution, don't you? What do do religious people who are trying to still be uh, impressive to the worldly scientists, what do they end up teaching and believing? I've heard some of them say that in the Bible when it says each day, they try to say each day was an age. Yeah, and there's a word for that whole idea that they have. Theistic evolution. Theistic evolution. <laughs> That's what my biology teacher taught in ninth grade. He believed in theistic evolution. You know, he didn't believe in God. He believed God used evolution to create. Well, do you think that really impressed the worldly atheist scientists? You know, you're not going to impress them, and yet you sell out what the Lord says in the Bible at the same time. You know, we're not going to impress the world. We might as well forget it. Just stay faithful to the Lord. But when we're too interested in the world respecting us and thinking that we're pretty sophisticated, that's exactly where Israel was. They wanted those alliances with the important nations. So they were thought of as a really important nation, too. Didn't work a bit. They were just thought of as somebody that the nations could take advantage of. I don't know. Comments? Questions? Thoughts? Um, I think many times we try to depend on fleshly things, and you have to understand that if you depend on fleshly things, they are fallible and you will fall. Eventually, you will fall. But if you depend on God, there is nothing stronger. He is everything, and we have to give Him everything. So we don't need to be propped up by the world, and it doesn't make any difference whether the world respects us or not. JD. Uh, typically, like in verse nine, uh, a wild donkey is used as kind of a negative comparison. Are you saying that the the wild donkey here is a positive? I think so. Contrast. I think at least a wild donkey has sense enough not to, uh, you know, indebt itself to these other animals. You know, a wild donkey may be kind of stubborn and all that. But they managed to keep their independence by staying all alone. Israel, on the other hand, is stupider than a wild donkey and hires these lovers that, you know, just suck up all their stuff. That's the way I see that. That's a debated. But, so why is uh, the middle line of verse 9 referring to a different group than the first and third lines? And line 1 is referring to Israel going up to Assyria. I think he's making a contrast. It'll depend on your translation, too, as to whether or not that makes much sense. Uh, yeah, but what mine reads it supplies a like that I think it probably not shouldn't be there it says for they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey all alone Ephraim has hired lovers but that like doesn't make a lot of sense they haven't gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey all alone but I think he's saying they've gone up to Assyria a wild donkey stays all alone but Ephraim's hired lovers so I think he's saying you know, while donkey has sense enough to stay by itself, <laughs> God's people are dumber than a donkey. Now, you don't have to accept that. That's a debated issue. 
as to how to translate that verse and how to see that comparison or contrast. But it makes more sense to me to see it as a contrast. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense to me how it compares. I don't think he's saying that they did the same thing. I think this, he's saying they do opposite things. That's my take. Go on. Uh, we can't trust in the world, you know, because why we are so eager to get the world's approval and to try to impress the world, as you said, is not the last anyhow. It, who cares what worldly people think about you? We don't want to look, um, I don't know, what would the word be? We don't want to look dumb, we don't want to look unsophisticated. What do people think we really know what we're doing? You know, I remember... This was hard for me. When I was like in maybe like seventh and eighth grade, you know, I grew up in a sheltered home, thankfully, and I wasn't exposed to a lot of stuff. You know, we would have some limits on the kinds of entertainment we had and the kind of things we talked about. So, well, I'm getting like seventh and eighth grade. And these kids sitting in the back of the class start talking all this stuff about, you know, what these guys and girls are doing with each other and all this kind of stuff. And it made me feel really inferior. It made me feel really stupid, like, I don't, I don't really understand this. And, you know, because they, they, oh, they do all kinds of things. Well, later, you know, I realized half the time they didn't know what they were talking about. They were just trying to impress people. But at the time, it made me feel like I'm really stupid. Because I don't know, you know, I've never done all the stuff they've done. Well, Thank God. That's a blessing. You know, I didn't have some of the worries and problems they had, you know, for having done those things. But so often, we look at the world, and we're like, oh, I wish I could do that too. Oh, they're having all this stuff, and I don't, I don't get that. I just feel really dumb. No, feel really blessed. God's sparing you from those things. You know, I didn't, I didn't have to uh, deal with any unwanted pregnancies or any venereal diseases or, you know, anything like that. I mean, you know, I, I, could, I could marry my wife as a, a virgin and, and thank God for that. And, you know, some of them, you know, couldn't do that. Um, so forget the world. I'm making it much what the world thinks. Serve the Lord. You know, if the world thinks we're stupid, well, I don't think it. They'll find out one of these things. Other thoughts? Yeah. I think we get caught up with what any any person thinks about us. It's really God is our only audience. And until we realize that, we're going to be doing things for other people that we should have done for God, and God's going to bring us to shame. Amen. Yeah, we don't want to please anybody but God. We're in trouble. Other thoughts? Alright, 11 to 14.
because he threw his name many altars of sin. They have become for him altars for sin. I have written for him the great things of my law, but they were considered a shame. For the sacrifices of my offerings, they sacrifice flesh and meat. But the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and has built temples. Judah also has multiplied and fortified cities. But I will send fire upon his cities, and he and it shall devour his palaces. Okay. Now, what was Israel good at doing? For God. Making altars. <clears throat> altars and sacrifices. Oh, they were good at that. They made lots of sacrifices. And wonder why they made all these sacrifices. Clearing their conscience. Sure. They want they want God to like them. They're, 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 they're God-fearing people. So they, they make all these sacrifices. They they have all this worship. And uh, would God, does God care about sacrifices? Would he want them to have offered sacrifices? Well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? And God's the one that commanded sacrifices. But he doesn't seem very impressed with their sacrifices. That doesn't seem to be what he's looking for. What's wrong with their sacrifices? The heart's not in it. Yeah, how do you know? How could you tell? Because they're making so many of them. Well, that, that may be. In verse 13, it says they sacrificed meat and eat it. Yes. So it's all about the, their heart and attitude and how they perceive it. They seem to enjoy the sacrificial meal more than they wanted to honor God. I think that's exactly right. You know, it's fun for them to offer a peace offering and get to enjoy the, the, the meat, you know, and the offering. So that, that might make you wonder if their mode is very pure. But what about verse 12? They didn't follow the law. They didn't listen to him. If they were so concerned about pleasing God, why didn't they obey what he said? Does that, does that seem a little strange? And what would you think about somebody who they, they, they come to every service but, you know, they lie, they cheat, they steal, you know, they're sexually impure, etc., etc. But they don't miss the service. Is there something inconsistent about that? Why are they so concerned with the services? Well, maybe they, you know, want to absolve their conscience. Maybe they like coming, maybe they enjoy the people. But clearly they're not concerned about God's will, but they want to do what He said. That's the way these guys are. They're, they're not listening to what he says. They're not doing what he said. They offer plenty of sacrifices. Well, God's not going to, uh, going to uh, receive those. Uh, he's taken no delight in them. He doesn't want worship from somebody who doesn't care to listen to him. So what's he going to do to them? He will send a fire upon his city. Oh, he's going to burn up their cities. What else are you going to do? Send them back to Egypt. Send them back to... They haven't been in Egypt before. (laughs) 
fact Egypt. Have they been in Egypt? Mm-hmm. Yeah? When? <laughs> yeah, that was their, their slavery in Egypt, their bondage. Who had led them out of Egypt? Moses. Now God will send them back to Egypt, that is, back into bondage, back into slavery. He's going to reverse the covenant. He just, we're just going to play this film backwards. So go right back where they started from, because they haven't been faithful to God. Now we'll find out in the next chapter that the location of Egypt was going to be Assyria. Egypt stands for their slavery, their bondage, and uh, not the physical, geographical location. But God's going to just cancel out the covenant because they've forgotten him. Comments and thoughts on anything here in chapter 8? Okay. This made me think of uh, when Saul didn't uh, completely destroy the Amalekites when Samuel rebukes him in 1 Samuel 15 verse 23 says Samuel said as the Lord is much delighted in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord behold to obey is better than the sacrifice and to heed than the fatter rams and so we see that uh, even in the Old Testament God, God had always preferred obedience that sacrifices were not served service necessarily absolutely just offering some worship when we won't obey what God says in our life doesn't earn any value points with God. He wants us to do what he says. That's a simple point. Many people miss it. But it made so well with Saul with the Amalekites when, when he was told in his rebuke that to obey is better than to sacrifice. Exactly. You know, one, they go hand in hand. You can't separate them. Yeah, that's exactly right. If the sacrifice isn't a part of your obedience, then it's really empty. If you really are concerned about obeying, then you're going to be concerned about everything God says. We have some selective obedience. You know, we, we want to obey the things we like and skip the other stuff. I say that's not obedience at all. If you really obey, you do what God says, whether you like it or not. They, the build up them being good at sacrifices and then you think that that's kind of like when we do something that I kind of want to do anyway and you know we'll just plan on asking, you know, saying a prayer later and asking for forgiveness or you know even if it's immediately afterwards get that out of the way yes yes we just sort of manipulate God well, I, I offered to sacrifice so now I'm okay that may be part of what they were doing you know maybe just kind of like well, I'll get a sit offering and now I'll be okay and you know that just doesn't work that way. God sees through that for us. Okay. On the same vein, I'm in this far already. I'm going to repent later anyhow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, might as well go ahead and sin, you know. Right. Get a good bit of sin in so I can, you know, one repentance will do it all or something. Yeah. yeah. You can tell people don't love God when we think that way. Wow. It's just... And how do we think that God is going to allow himself to be manipulated you know, he, he sees through that. You know, you might be able to fool somebody else, I don't know, but you won't fool God. Alright. I just had a question here. On sure. verse, verse 11 there was that because he's here to keep from his maiden altars for sin, blah, blah, blah. Um, in Deuteronomy 12, after the the Lord says that you shall offer sacrifice in the place that I tell you. Um, the place of worship and sacrifice was the, was the temple in Jerusalem, and they were building the false... Uh, I mean, they had the, the, the idols in Bethlehem Dan, and 
going off. So they didn't have authority to do that. Am I misunderstanding? Okay. I think you're right. Okay, so they were. So, so in that sense, even the fact that they were making multiple altars was disobeying God. Just multiplying their sin because it didn't mean anything anyway. Right. Yeah. Sometimes we we think that well, it's worship to God, therefore God will accept it. But if it's not what God says, it may be an abomination to Him. And you're right. I mean, from the time that the, the temple was built, the only place they were ever supposed to offer sacrifice was in the temple. You know, before that, when God hadn't yet chosen the place, they could offer it in various places. But after after David and Solomon, worship on the high places was always contested. Other comments? Yeah, Shane. You know, when I even think of obedience, you think of sacrifice going along with that. It's not really obedience if you want to. Be. You know, it's what you want. You know, the idea that we agree, you know, we want to do what we agree with is totally against what the Bible talks about. You think about, you know, Mark 8, 34, passages like that. You know, take up your cross, follow me, deny yourself. You know, obedience entails sacrifice. And that's the, and that's the kind of obedience that means the most. You know, it means more to us if we ask somebody to do something they don't really want to do it, but do it anyway, than if they were going to, they're on their way. You know what I'm saying? Yes. You know, the idea that it means more to God when, when we don't want to do it, but we do it anyway. Yes. Showing the love of these others. Yes. Definitely. Other thoughts? No more. Uh, Psalm 51 and verses 16 and 17 is kind of the same as the verses mentioned earlier. It says, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These are not despised. Amen. Good passage. Other thoughts? Okay. Look at chapter 9. Um, somebody want to read 1 to 6? <clears throat> Do not rejoice, O Israel, with joy like other peoples, for you have played the harlot against your God. You have made love for hire on every threshing floor. The threshing floor and the wine press shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail in her. They shall not dwell in the Lord's land, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and shall eat unclean things in Assyria. They shall not offer wine offerings to the Lord, nor shall their sacrifices be pleasing to him. It shall be like bread of mourners to them. All who eat it shall be defiled. For their bread shall be for their own life. It shall not come into the house of the Lord. What will you do in the appointed day, and in the day of the feast of the Lord? For indeed they are gone because of destruction. Egypt shall gather them up. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall pass their valuables of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. This doesn't look good. They have forsaken God, playing the harlot, you know, the idols, the nations. So look at the horrible punishment God would bring because of their unfaithfulness to Him. In verse 2, what's going to happen? Yeah. No crops. Verse 3, what's going to happen? They're going to be evicted out of God's land. He's the property owner. He's going to kick them off of his land. To where? Assyria. Yeah, Egypt, that is, Assyria. You see that right there? Ephraim will return to Egypt and in Assyria. 
So that Egypt for this people was going to be Assyria, where they weren't going to be able to offer sacrifices or even eat clean meat. They would not be able to conduct the worship properly. He says, what are you going to do? In verse 5, when it comes to the feast days. You know, they enjoyed those special feast days, those festivals. And now they're going to have feast days and nothing will happen. They're in, they're in Assyria. They're away from the temple. They can't go back there. It's going to be so sad for them. And so, give them so much nostalgia for the good old days. He says, you know, they'll, they'll be gathered up by Egypt. Memphis will bury them. Weeds and thorns will take over their stuff. So, they're just going to be, their, their property is going to be grown up. And they're kicked out into Assyria. That's the punishment for forsaking the Lord. Comments and questions? Okay. What's uh, Memphis? What's That's a city in Egypt. So this is still with that Egyptian theme of the place of bondage. Other questions and comments? I think the Lord is doing a reality. I mean, this is what's going to happen with them is really what they're doing anyway. I mean, in the sense of, and it's just about as valuable. I mean, they're offering up nothing to the Lord, so He's just going to send them, and and it all equals the same. It's just that they're you know, being punished. For good point. Yeah, good point. Other thoughts. Like said in verse 4, their bread shall be for their own life. Whereas that's, you, you'll need every bit of it just to stay alive. Yes. And it's not going to be a pretty picture. You know, they'd have been so much better off with Bangalore, saying. Anything about, um, you know, for the people that did not want, that are doing these things just to sacrifice it, probably mean a ton to them, they were gone. But to those like Daniel and others who were away from the temple, you know, it hurt them deeply. You know, I think it's in the Psalms where, where, you know, David is gone. He's not in the land. He's not able to worship in, in the house of the Lord. And how much that pains him and hurts him. Um, you know, how often do we crave that? Do, do, how often do we crave to go to the house of the Lord and to praise him? Do, do we look to worship in that way? Um, it hurt David and Daniel and others who were in captivity and they could not go to the house of the Lord. Um, did not have that blessing. How often do we take for granted the, the fact that we can go in God's presence and praise? Yeah, yeah. You don't value something until you don't have it. Psalm one thirty-seven really comes to mind with that, and I mean, we don't really take seriously the consequences that come with sin, like we were saying, especially in verse three, where they are evicted out of promised land, land of rest, we too, if we continue in our sin, will be evicted from the land of rest. Yes. Good point. Other thoughts? Alright, how about 7 to 10? The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel knows. The prophet is a fool, the spiritual man is insane. Because of the greatness of your iniquity and great enmity, the watchman of Ephraim is with my God, but the prophet is a 
foul his snare in all his ways. Enmity in the house of his God. They are deeply corrupted as in the days of Judah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. I found Israel like graves in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first seed. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves that shame. They became an abomination like the thing they loved. So he's really exposing the depth of their sin, and as a result of that, the punishment that's coming. Now, some of this in 7 and 8 is not easy to sort out. And it depends a lot on your translation, which you're going to read into it. I think that he is talking about how Israel rejects the prophets of God. They think the prophets are fool, the inspired man's demented, because they are so wicked. How do wicked people feel about righteous people's rebukes? They can easily dismiss them and just say they're nuts. Yeah. They don't want to hear it. You ever been like that? We ever not wanted to hear something? And uh, sort of, you know, tried to, to put it out of our mind because it wasn't the message we wanted? Well, I think that's what they were doing. Now, um, there are many translations of, of verse 8. I think this is the NIV reading. The prophet along with my God is the watchman over Ephraim, yet snares await him on all his paths and hostility in the house of his God. So I think what he's saying is the prophet is being trapped and, and, and faces hostility from the people. That the people don't like God's prophets rebuking their sins. Um, that's one of the, the worst things we can do, is to reject the messengers God sends, and to not receive God's message properly. Do you have some comments or questions on 7 and 8? What does he compare their depravity to in verse 9? Gibeah. Gibeah. Anybody know anything about Gibeah? He was pretty depraved. <laughs> he was pretty depraved. Why would you say that? That was where the uh, when that where the man brought in his uh, where they killed his concubine and he Yes, do you remember that story? That was a bad one. They, uh, the, this Levite had this concubine that left him, and he went to get her. And on his way back, they stopped in the Israelite city of Gabeah. Nobody let him spend the night except an Ephraimite. And when they got the concubine and her Levite husband uh, there to his house, the men of the city tried to practically tear the door down to get Levite, shades of Sodom and Gomorrah there, and Levite ends up tossing out his concubine to him and letting him do whatever they want to with her all night, and that probably was an unspeakably horrific night for her. She crawls up onto the doorstep early the next morning and dies. He gets up the next morning, sees her on the doorstep and doesn't realize she's dead and says, come on, we're going. She's dead. 
And then he cuts up her body, sends it to all the different places in Israel, and mobilizes for war, and they practically exterminate the tribe of Benjamin. And then the things they do to try to get wives for them was also pretty outrageous um, for the 600 Benjamite men who were left. But uh, that is probably about the lowest point of Israelite history. <laughs> You know, it would be hard to come up with much worse than the days of Gibeah. So when he says that about them, that is a real put-down. <laughs> that would be exactly like saying it's like Sodom and Gomorrah. Because Gibeah reminds me more of Sodom and Gomorrah than anywhere else I can think of. Comments and questions about that? That's Judges 19 to 21, by the way. If you don't know that story. Judges has got a lot of uh, hair-raising stories. And in 10, God, you know, had so much delight in Israel. You know, he treated Israel like grapes in the wilderness, like early fruit on the fig tree. You know, he was so glad to bless his people and to care for them. And he not any more than gotten them out of Egypt. And they come to Baal Peor and devote themselves to shame and become as detestable as the they love. You remember Baal Peor? What, what, what happened there? Married themselves to the daughters of Noah. Yeah. The Moabite women infiltrated themselves into the Israelite camp. The Israelite men committed idolatry and fornication because of the presence of these Moabite women. You know, it's so ridiculous. What would you think about? You know, marrying some woman, and before you even get off the honeymoon, she's with some other man. That's basically the way it amounted to when God married Israel. And so, I mean, it's just been a horrible record of sin and unfaithfulness. Yeah, Numbers 25 is good. Yeah, that's where it's going to Right at the end of the Balaam story. All right, comments and questions? Yeah, Judy. It seems to me that uh, you know, another part of, of this sinful, rebellious history of Israel, uh, we look back in chapter 8 and verse 4, uh, of setting up kings but not consulting God. And in the reference to Gabeah in 9 and 9 reminded me of Israel's very first king. Saul was from Gabeah. And, uh, I mean, it seems to be kind of a a symbol of, you know, they they wanted a king, they didn't want God to be their ruler, and, you know, they ended up picking, you know, they ended up with a man who they desired as king, but who was not, was not a ruler as God would have, as God would have preferred. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the fact that he was from this, this sinful city is another, uh, a symbol of, of their rebellion. I had not thought about Saul being from Gibeah. Is that is that the case? Yeah. Okay. Uh, first symbol. I had not made that connection. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, so that would make sense. But I guess that's where that where Samuel meets him.
11 and verse 4 makes reference to Gabea of Saul. Okay. Very good. And, and 10.26, Saul went to his house at Gabea. Okay. I have not picked up on that. That's, that's interesting to uh, observe as well. That could uh, further give connections to Gibeah that would that fit in the context. Very good. Thank you. Other comments and questions on any of this? children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them! When I depart from them, Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm, planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I begin to hate them, because of the wickedness Wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more, all their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken, their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their children to death. My God will reject them, because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among all nations. All right, here are the punishments God's going to break. The name Ephraim means double fruitfulness. And God reverses the meaning of that name here. Well, do you understand that Ephraim stands for Israel? We're using Ephraim and Israel interchangeably. Why would we do that? Ephraim, the uh, house of the king. Sometimes, Jeroboam at least. Because Isaiah did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> It was the most important tribe in the northern kingdom. So, you know, Israel and and, uh, Ephraim come to symbolize the same nation. So when he says Ephraim, really we're talking about the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. And and this this people, whose name means double fruitfulness, there's going to be no birth, no pregnancy, and no conception. Now, if you don't have any birth, and you don't even have any pregnancy, and there's not even conception. Guess what you won't have? Before long, you won't have a nation. That's exactly right. You have no offspring. No, there's no offspring. There's no possibility of offspring. There's not even any chance for any offspring. It's over. Uh, though they bring up their children, what if they did have? Well, I'll be reading them from them. I'll take them away from them. Kill them. So God is going to make them doubly unfruitful. Ephraim had been planted in a pleasant meadow like Tyre in my translation, which was a place Tyre was a rich, powerful prosperous city. God had given great opportunities for his people to be in a place where they could prosper and thrive but but they did not remain faithful to God and therefore 
pray something for Israel, what's the most merciful thing you can pray for? Yeah, or as he says, a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. In other words, if you want to, if you want to pray the most kind prayer you could for this people, pray that they not have any offspring. Now that seems kind of cruel, you know. Even for us, you know, a couple gets married and they can't have children. That stinks. That's really hard. But. Given the punishment that's going to come upon this nation, the most merciful thing you could wish for for them was that they not have any children that have to be brought to this. That's how bad things have gotten. He says all their evils at Gilgal, which came to be a place of an idol sanctuary. Indeed, I came to hate them there. Does God hate the sin only, or does he hate the sinner too? We so often say God hates the sin, but he doesn't hate the sinner. Unfortunately, there's a lot of Bible passages where God speaks of hating the sinner. Now, does he love the sinner also? In another sense, he does. But God God couldn't stand these people. Uh, he was going to drive them out of his house. I love them no more. They're princes are rebels. Again, Ephraim's going to be dried up, no fruit. I'm going to slay their children. I'm going to cast them away. There'll be wanderers, vagabonds among the nations. God was so upset with them that he was going to do everything he could to destroy his people. Of course, he was well able to do that. So, uh, so that, that's God's verdict on the nation of Israel. And shortly after Hosea writes this, the Assyrians came and wiped them out and took them away. Comments and questions about this chapter? Russ. We've been studying the minor prophets of the church in Bloomington, and um, the teacher, or the person who's been teaching the past two lessons, it was Amos and Hosea, Mm -hmm. and he keeps pointing out just how close the dates are getting, and how much more urgent the prophecies get, and they still don't pay attention. Yeah, it's never be long. There's not going to be an Israel to listen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're exactly right. They ought to have listened to Hosea and Amos and Morris. When they don't, it is to their own demise. The year this was written was. The year Syria came in was. Yeah. Unfortunately, God's people have a bad habit of not listening to him when he says things that they really need to pay attention to. Other comments on chapter 9? It seems really complete, you know, God says they're not going to have any pregnancy or conception or birth, but then he says even if they do, I'll kill them. Any way you look at it, it's not a, there's no way for them to have offspring. Yeah. It's it's like overkill here. You can't, you won't have any, and if you did, I'd kill them anyway, so. That pretty well takes care of. Other thoughts? Chapter 10, verses 1 to 10. Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. 
the richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. Their heart is faithless. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. Surely now they will say, we, do, we have no king, but we do not revere the Lord. As for the king, what can he do for us? They speak mere words with worthless oaths. They make covenants. And judgment, sprout like, and judgment sprouts like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria will fear for the calf of Beth Aven. Indeed, its people will mourn for it, and its idolatrous priests will cry out over it, over its glory, since it has departed from it. The thing itself will be carried into Assyria, a tribute to King Jared. Ephraim will, see, will be seized with shame, and Israel will be ashamed of its own counsel. Samaria will be cut off with her king, like a stick on the surface of the water. Also the high, priest, high places of Aden, the sin of Israel, will be destroyed. Thorn and thistle will grow on their altars, and they will say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, Fall on us. From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they stand. Will not the battle against the sons of iniquity overtake them in Gibeah? When, when it is my desire, I will chastise them, and, when the, peoples, and the peoples will be gathered against them, and when they, when they are bound for their double guilt. Okay. So, look at all God prospered the people with. He gave them so much prosperity. What did they do with God's prosperity? weren't God-authorized altars. I bet most of them were altars for idols. So they're taking what God gives them and perverting it to purposes that are abominations in the sight of God. That is so outrageous. It is taking the blessings that a husband gives a wife, and she takes them, and makes nice things for her boyfriend. That is so outrageous. Man, what man would put up with that? You know, is he going to keep giving her more stuff so she can spend it on her boyfriend? That's exactly what God's people were doing. God was the source of all their prosperity. They spent it to worship the idols. And God just couldn't stand it. Uh, he, he says their heart is faithless. That's a good statement. It's, you know, they, they're untrustworthy. In the extreme, they're betraying God. They've got to bear their own guilt. The Lord's going to break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. And I would have too. The amazing thing is why God waited so long. That's the amazing thing. It is certainly understandable why God was not happy about all this. And so, who is going to be able to help them? Well, maybe it's better to say who won't be able to help. Who won't help? The king won't. And who else won't? God won't. Who's going to be there for you? They speak mere words with worthless oaths. They make covenants. What does that tell you about them in their interpersonal relationships? Just as good as they were with the Lord. <laughs> yeah. Totally untrustworthy. 
don't trust a word they say. When we are trustworthy with God, we won't be trustworthy with each other. You know, somebody who's not got enough uh, integrity to be faithful to his wife, I'm not looking for him to be faithful to anybody else either. Doesn't care about his own word. And so they were like that. They, you, can't, you can't trust a thing they say. The inhabitants of Samaria, verse 5, will fear for the calf of beth Avon. Indeed, its people will mourn for it. Its idolatrous priests will cry out over it, over its glory, since it's departed from it and is carried off to Assyria as a tribute to King Jerob. Now, the calf of beth Avon. What's beth Avon? I think we've said this before. It's Beth El. Why call it Beth Avon? It's a play on the name. Yes, Beth El means what? House of God, Beth Avon. House of House of emptiness, House of vanity. You know, because them making that golden calf at Bethel meant it wasn't a house of God anymore. It was a house of vanity and emptiness. Um, and so he calls them its people. Who's the its? The idols? The calf, yeah. They are not God's people anymore. They're the calf's people. <laughs> and that's what it amounts to. And uh, so what? what's the emotion of the people in verse 5? Sad. Well, that's a good thing. You know, it'll help us when we are sad, when we're not doing well. But what are they sad about? Yes! What should they have been sad about? Their sin. Their relationship with God. They're mourning the cotton-picking calf. Ridiculous! <laughs> They're not mourning their sin. They're not mourning their loss of relationship with God. But this calf has gotten carried off as tribute payment to the Assyrians. And uh, it's just it's just amazing that they would believe in a calf who gets himself carried off to Assyria. You know, what kind of a deity is that? Not only that, can the calf not prevent them going into exile, can protect himself from going to exile. What, you know, it's such a, such a foolish thing to trust in something other than God. You tell me what you trust in, and tell me it's any smarter to trust in that than it is this cow. At least there was some gold in this cow. Better than some of the things we're tempted to put our trust in. Comments and questions through verse 6. Um, the footnote in my Bible says that paper means house of wickedness. There's some of the Hebrew that's like a similar meaning or something. Yeah, wickedness, emptiness, it's all about the same thing. I think it's all the same thing. John. Yes. You know, you have back in chapter 9, verse, the last part, verse 10, at least in the King James says, they became an abomination like the thing that they loved. Yes. You know, there's an old saying, tell me what you love and I'll tell you who you are. Um, 
you know, you look at this passage you discussed about the, the missing the calf, you know, <coughs> that's the thing they love and that's what they became. Here's an old story that uh, one time a boss took his secretary out and invited her out to lunch. And he said, uh, as I read, he said, would you have an affair with me for a million dollars? He said, well, yeah. He said, well, would you have an affair with me for a thousand? He said, well, yeah. He said, would you have an affair with me for five dollars? She said, what kind of woman do you think I am? <laughs> he said, we've already determined that. We're just dickering over price now. <laughs> yeah. That's a great illustration. Uh, we've got a price, the devil will meet it. Yeah. yeah they, they are so much like the cat. We've become like what we worship. We've become like other thoughts. No It's bad that they're worshiping something other than God, but why on earth would they even worship a God? Israel, 
There they stand. Will not the battle against the sons of iniquity overtake them in Gibeah? They maintain that mindset of corruption and wickedness and disobedience to God from the days of Gibeah until now, and they're going to be destroyed. God's going to gather the peoples against them and punish them. So, I mean, you know, Hosea is not saying a lot of different things in these sections, but he's saying them in many different ways, showing their guilt, showing them the punishment God's going to bring upon them. And so I really do like the figures of speech he uses. They're very, they make you think. <coughs> Comments and questions? Peter. It's just scary when you look around and think how things are today. Yes. You wonder if the Lord might uh, do the same thing again? I'm going to say, um, in the end of verse 8, I'm going to, the people say, cover us into the hills, follow us. It's kind of like a, a plea for protection from like the Lord's whipping, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, and, and clearly a desperate plea. You know, you ever uh, really wanted a mountain to avalanche you? <laughs> that was rather painful. A bruising experience, uh, yet that's preferable to facing God's wrath. Right. Gourds and thistles is kind of reminiscent of the, the curse brought on man, but I think this is almost a blessing that it covers up the idolatrous altars. Good point. Better for them to be grown up. Other thoughts? All right. 11 to 15. Your hand is a trained heifer that loves to thresh grain, but I harness her burnet. I will make you bring full of plow. Judah shall plow, Jacob shall break his corns. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. For you have plowed wickedness, you have reaped iniquity. You've beaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way, in the multitude of your mighty men. Therefore, two more shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be plundered. As Shalman plundered Beth Arbel in the day of battle, a mother dashed in pieces upon her children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great wickedness. At dawn the king of Israel shall be cut off utterly. Okay. Look at what he says about Israel in verse 11. She's a trained heifer that loves to thresh. What was it threshing? Wasn't that when they would separate the chaff from the green ants? Yes. What would a calf have to do with that? A heifer? Yeah. They would do that. They'd throw the grain, say like the wheat, into a big, big, I don't know what you want to call it, a big threshing floor, a big, big area. And then they, they'd have the heifer walk around. If the heifer walks around, you know, just the, the process of stepping on this, it's going to separate the straw from the grain. Now, what did God tell them they couldn't do to an ox that was threshing the grain? Couldn't muzzle it. You know what that means? Like basically tying the mouth shut. 
Why couldn't they tie their mouth shut when the uh, ox was threshing the grain? What was wrong with that? Because when the ox was working for them, it was allowed to eat. Yes. So the idea is that's a great occupation for a, for a cow or an ox or whatever. You get to walk around on this grain and eat it as you go. You know, that, that's, that, that's, that's the ideal job for a heifer. That's the way God made it for Israel. He gave them a perfect circumstance, easy employment, everything comfortable, but they didn't stay faithful to him. Therefore, God's going to come over her fair neck with a yoke, harness Ephraim, Judah will plow, Jacob will harrow for himself. Compared to threshing the grain, what would uh, plowing and harrowing be like for an animal. It's hard work. Hard work, absolutely. Not much reward from it. So, because they haven't been willing to accept the blessings of God and be faithful to Him, now it's going to be hard work. Now it's going to be difficult situations. And so He exhorts them. I love verse 12. This is, this is what they need to do. They need to change their farming technique. They need to sow righteousness. They need to reap kindness. Break up your fallow ground. For it's time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness on you. They've got to quit sowing this garbage. The injustice and the idolatry, the wickedness. Start sowing righteousness and faithfulness. And he says, break up your fallow ground. What's fallow ground? Until. Until. So how would it be to break up a follow until the ground? It's hard because you've got a lot of weeds on it and it can have all kinds of uh, thorns and so forth. Yeah, that's going to be really hard work to turn the ground that's never been turned. He's talking about their lives that are hard and crusted over with worldliness and wickedness. He says, you've got to get in there and plow that under and turn it over. You know, there's just too much garbage and we've let it go for so long. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be really painful. But that's what they got to do. Break up your follow ground. It is time to seek the Lord. You've plowed plenty of wickedness. You, you've gone your own way. Now turn back to God. So righteous and break up your follow and that's exactly what we've got to do. We have got to turn to God. I don't care if we've gone for years not even touching certain areas of our lives. We've got to, we've got to put that plow in and turn it over and, and, and serve God. He said, you plowed wickedness. You reaped injustice. You eaten the fruit of lies. You trusted in your own strength. You, you reap what you sow. You plow wickedness. Guess what you're going to get? It's not going to be a pretty picture. You plant righteousness. You plant righteousness and you'll get blessings from God. So he says, your fortresses will be destroyed just like Shalman destroyed Beth Arbol on the day of battle. Know nothing about that, but it sounds like it must have been bad. Because the mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. So that's probably not something they want to repeat in their case. He says, this, thus it will be done to you at Bethel because of your great wickedness. Your king will be completely cut off. 
So if they don't break up the follow ground and start planting righteousness, it's curtains for them. It's going to be painful, cruel punishment that God will bring upon them. Comments and questions? Yes. We don't always think of the punishment we have to go through because it, it doesn't seem like it's right after we do what we do. It may come in a totally different form, maybe even in the innocence, but we're still going to have to go through it. And that's the hard, one of the hardest things to accept. Good point. Other comments? I would venture to say that everybody needs to hear verse 12 in some way or another. That even every Christian has something that they've been falling at consistently for a long time that they need to be like, okay, I'm going to fix this. Yeah. Yeah, is there some area of your life you've left unplowed? It's been untilled for a long time. But you need to put the plow of God in even though it's going to be hard and painful and turn that thing under and start again. I love that figure. Anything else in chapter 10? <coughs> All right, let's take a break for a few minutes. Thank you for listening to that, sharing with that. And we'll take a break from every 15 minutes.